Hello and welcome to People of Tech with me, Charles Commons, the podcast where I speak to leading figures discussing the current climate and the future of technology in their industries. Along the way, we'll learn more about the people behind the job title and share their thoughts and opinions on their role. In this week's episode... I see a lot in the industry, we kind of look at people and think, oh, they don't want to do security or people don't care about security. The standards, but they write a standard, the browser implements a standard, and then it's like, how do people find out? And right now, the answer is they read blogs like mine or one of the other many security people out there. We can't just come in and say, don't do this thing. What we should do is come in and say, okay, we've got a safe way for you to do what you would do. And then people will embrace security and security can become an enabler rather than a blocker. My guest this week is security researcher Scott Helm. An international speaker and blogger, Scott is also the founder of securityheaders.com and reporturi.com, free tools that can be used to help you deploy better security. To start our conversation today, Scott tells us a little bit more about what he does. So yeah, day to day, I actually have quite a few different things that I do. Um, so I founded my own company that actually started out as a side project of mine uh, a little over three and a half years ago now. So it's a, a free online website. Anyone can go. It's report-uri.com. And we're a, it's a real-time security monitoring solution. So uh, browsers nowadays have lots of features built into them to be able to detect things that go wrong on your website. And when they detect those things, they can send a report somewhere. And you sign up for an account with us and you can have the browser send those reports and we give you graphs and dashboards and tell you about exactly what's going on with your website. So that's kind of my main job, if you will. That's my day job. I also have a few other projects I I run. Um, Securityheaders.com is another big one. It's a free online kind of security analysis tool. You just head over, type in your website, hit scan, takes a couple of seconds. And it, it just gives you like a really high level report. It's a, It's not like an in-depth security analysis, anything like that. It's, it's really designed to be an educational tool to help people learn about new features or things maybe that they aren't doing. Uh, I, of course, write my blog. I'm on scotthelm.co.uk, so I, I write lots of articles about online security and performance there. Um, I do international speaking. I also do a lot of training now as well. Um, I used to, in the old days, be a penetration tester and find security flaws in applications, but now I spend a lot of time trying to educate people how to not have them in their applications in the first place. So I have a a two-day advanced course on encryption, and I've also teamed up with a good friend of mine called Troy, who does a course called Hack Yourself First, which is a two-day hacking course, which is really good fun. Oh, brilliant. I was actually going to ask you about um, the two websites. Um, What made you actually create them in the first place? So they were both kind of driven, like most of the things that I do, by my own interests at a given moment in time. So years and years ago, I learned about these reporting capabilities in the browser. And I was like, hey, this is awesome. If something goes wrong, I can have the browser tell me. So I I jumped on Google and I was like, I'll go sign up to a service that does this. And I spent 10 minutes on Google and couldn't find one. And if you spend 10 minutes on Google looking for something and don't find it, it doesn't exist. So I was like, wow, that sucks. (laughs) Uh, So I built it. And that's how Report Your Eye came to be. Um, I built it for myself, but I thought, well, I'll just open it up and other people can can use that and, and have access to it. And it just grew so much over the years without me anticipating that really, that it got to the point last year where I either had to stop running it because my side project budget was being completely blown out of the water. Um, and I, I was like, well, I either have to close this down or, or start charging for it really. 
I noticed when I when I went and had a look at uh, both of them, um, you do have, although there are, it seems, am I right in saying that there is a, still a free option on um, Report URI? Yeah. You can choose a, a package, basically, as to how much information you get or, or how much data that you, you yeah. see back. Is that right? That's kind of a, a core part of the service for me in that it, it was started and run free for all those years, despite costing me a, a fortune, because it helps people deploy security features. It helps people keep on top of security problems with their website and, and other aspects as well. So we have kept the free tier despite becoming a commercial service because I still want, you know, if someone's running a small blog or a little website that, you know, they don't necessarily want to spend that much money on, I still think those people should be able to have security features. Um, so we're just trying to strike that balance between providing a service that's there to improve people's security, but it has to be a sustainable business as well. Um, you know, we've only been going six months. Like, what was it? It was November last year. So kind of like coming up on 12 months, actually, at the time of recording. And we're going to make some tweaks to the free to account soon because I've just run the stats. 98.99% of our users are on the free tier, which is just a, a tad too many. Um, but we are keeping that free tier. We're just going to feature restrict it a little because we do, we do need to be sustainable as a business. And, you know, I, I imagine... People won't be happy about that, and and I can totally understand that. But it's it's kind of like a necessary evil, right? Yeah, I, I think if you're going to, like you said before, if if basically it was a case of I either close it and and stop doing it, or or start asking people to pay for it. If if that was the point that you were at then, and then now, almost a year later, as you say, you're you're getting to the point where there's still 98% of the users are still on that free basic uh, basic tier. Um, there's got to be a point when you start actually making some money from it. So I think that's fair enough. Um, as you say, people aren't going to be happy, but you can't please everybody all of the time, I suppose, with those things. Um, well, this is something that you learn. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. Um, so who are you kind of aiming it at? I mean, I, 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 so as an example, I, I have a blog. It's uh, nothing special, and it, it certainly doesn't get updated as much as it should do. But... Is that really the kind of people you're aiming it at, or, or are you really aiming it at, at big business, big brands that uh, that don't necessarily have their own in-house features for them? One of the things that we do need to do as a service is to start targeting this better, uh, because it started off as a side project. It was just made free for anyone that wanted it. So in essence, we didn't really target anyone. It was just kind of like, hey, this thing is here. Uh, but now that we're becoming a business, we have had to start um, kind of, you know, focusing and becoming more aware of that, like exactly who is our target audience, what kind of websites. Um, so really, it's, it's anyone that that wants these features. And it's the kind of people inside organizations that might look at this would be maybe security focused developers, operations, maybe actually members of a security team if an organization is large enough to have dedicated security people. And and right now, I guess one of the main limitations is that we are a very security-focused service. All of the things that we report on are security. But actually, I'm this morning, just before our call, I'm writing a blog for a big feature that we're releasing next week um, from the point of recording. It's the 12th now, so we're aiming to release it maybe the 20th, 21st of October. Um, and we're actually going to start monitoring a lot more things about your online application. So not just security threats, but... Uh, uptime availability health checking are there any like configuration issues are users seeing warnings or having a degraded experience and that'll really take us from like a security focused service to something much more generic but it's exactly the same principle in that these are all 
monitoring facilities built into the browser. So this is native browser functionality. We don't have to deploy code or an agent or a library or anything like that. This is literally hooking into features that the browser vendors themselves are building. You mentioned before that you've also uh, a writer on your, on your blog, scotthelm.co.uk. Um, I, I ha- I've had a look through that. And while it's aimed at people that are maybe in the security or, or cybersecurity uh, sector, um, a lot of it, if you go back far enough into your, in, into your website, then a lot of it is aimed at you know the, the normal person that uses Facebook. Um, you've, I think your very first article that you can actually read on that on on your website is all about the Facebook <laughs> yeah. security settings. Um, it is, and, and how you can do that. Have you found that you've sort of transitioned as you've gone along, as you started? You know, you maybe were talking to um, the, the casual internet browser to now being more geared at, um, you know, maybe chief information and security officers at, at big brands. Yeah, I think it's a, a really interesting transition. So I, I also write a year in review article every year and I go and count how many articles I've got. And like every now and again, I scroll back through my history of blogs. And I think that I never started blogging with a set purpose. I wanted to blog uh, because I enjoyed writing. It's a really good way of making sure that I understand something. If I can explain it to someone else, then I kind of have to understand it properly. So I, I really like that aspect as well. But I think the, the transition over time um, is completely just not intentional. I think that just shows my progress as a person of becoming more and more deeply involved in the security world. So I started blogging when I was kind of an observer of the security field and I wanted to be in the security field. Mm. So as you scroll through that blog timeline, things become more security focused because that's the way that my natural interest went. And I guess as my personal blog, I write about things that interest me at the time. So you can see that um, that kind of transition and the increase in the security focus and the technical nature of articles. So it's probably like a, a chronological map of, of my uh, self-learning into security. You started off, actually, if I'm right in saying this, as an information technology um, liaison officer, officer with the Lancashire Constabulary. Um, so how how did you transition from that role into your role within the security sector now? Oh, wow. My, <laughs> my job history is quite interesting because a lot of people say, hey, how did you break into security? And, you know, I'd, I'd love to do it. Do you have any tips? And I never actually set out with... Um, like an end goal of doing that. I've just always chased what I was interested in and passionate at the time. So going back a little bit further, I did software engineering at university. And I think that was a great skill to have still to this day. But I, when I left university, I just knew that I didn't want to do that as my job. I wanted to use my software engineering skills to help me do my job and not have that be my job. Um, so fresh out of university, I went into a couple of support roles, You know, kind of struggled to find work at the time and did a couple of support roles and then moved into quality assurance. So this was my first foray into something that kind of satisfied like an internal curiosity I have of breaking things. So I I was really good at being a QA because I have like this natural curiosity. If someone says, you know, this is the on button and this is the off button, I'll press them both. And then my immediate next thought is kind of this inner child of like, what if we press them both really fast? And it's not that I want to be destructive. I just that seems to be how I function and how my brain works. So I quickly moved through the ranks of QA from junior to senior QA lead. I then moved into QA automation, which kind of married up my QA experience with my software engineering degree. So now I'm automating QA. And from there, 
um, you know, after you've automated all the functionality of a product, you try and break the product. And one of the things that I started reading into was security. It was a really big thing at the time. And I was like, hey, you know, like if we can put valid and invalid input into our application, what about like hostile input? And I started just putting some really basic security tests into our automation suite. And it, that just at that point really grabbed my interest of like, wow, this can be so surprisingly easy to cause harm to an application and to break it in really unexpected ways. And that's when I just deep dived into security, started blogging, doing my own independent research. And then in, I think it was 2014 from memory, I published a particular piece of research that got national and international coverage on the EE Brightbox, the router here in the UK that had a pretty bad security flaw in it and the, the disclosure and the whole patching and everything didn't really go smoothly. So it made quite a few headlines. And then I was headhunted by a security firm here in the UK. And that was my first move into an actual security-based role. So I didn't even actually go and apply for it. They approached me. so. I guess, like I say, there was no intention there on my part. I didn't set out the goal. It just, I, I've been really fortunate with some opportunities and I've grasped them and here I am today. I, it does sound very much like actually the fact that you went to university, you did one thing, albeit that you could pr probably say that it's still, there is a connection to it. You're, you're using software. That's what you were, you know, you were writing about and reading about at university. You're, you're still in software, um, but you're looking at it from a different angle now. I think that's quite interesting that even though you went to do one thing, you then, like many students like myself, came out of university not really wanting to carry on doing what they'd been doing for the last three, four years, however long it's been. Um, and, and then you find yourself doing something else, but then it kind of leads you back to where you were at the start, but as I said, at that slightly different angle to it. Um, I think that's very interesting. How many people actually end up doing the same similar thing? Um, it's not always a, a very linear line of, of, you know, go to university, get a job in that field and, and carry on until you retire, um, just working your way up and up and up. I think that's really, really good. You also do a lot of public speaking, Scott, as you said before. Um, what, what are you hoping that when you go and do these events, what are you hoping that the attendees go back to their desk or go back to their offices and, and start thinking about when you've done your speaking? Do you know, it kind of ties in with the whole education thing again, really. If, um, you know, if you go and look at my talk titles and, and just the abstracts, you can see they're all really focused around teaching people about new security uh, features or mechanisms or practices and I mean I, I really enjoy what I do I you know I started the company and moved completely into this space and got so heavily involved in it because I enjoy kind of what I do day to day and for me talking about that isn't a, a particular hardship you know the, the travel and, and being away from home and things like that of course are but I want to teach people that these things exist and I I see a lot in the industry that we kind of look at people and think, oh, they don't want to do security or people don't care about security. And so many times when I go and do these talks and, and talk about things like what report your eye does and say, hey, did you know the browser can A, protect you from all these attacks and B, tell you if they happen. And people don't come up to me and go, oh, that's boring. We don't want to do that. People come up to me and say, I had no idea this was possible. And what I found that so often is either people don't know that these things exist or they 
they have like the wrong understanding. So I just want to try and knock down those barriers, show people that it can be easy. We have these awesome features available and, and really just try and make security accessible to more people. Do you find it surprising then that, that people don't necessarily understand how much um, how, many, how much tools are available to them um, to, to keep their, their, their sites secure? To me, that sounds quite surprising, and especially in this day and age. Lots of things have happened in the last year that we've heard about. British Airways um, are hacking, and I, 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 it was a, there was a government, whether it was HMRC or, or something at the start of 2018, um, it to me that that's quite surprising to hear you sort of say you're, you're going in and then people are sort of saying I had no idea that that could be done um, I would have thought people would already be aware of this sort of thing that they could be doing I guess in a way it's I think a lot of the time I feel that the security industry is kind of responsible for this because we like take the the government thing that you mentioned earlier this year it could have been the one I was involved with where all of the government websites were hit with crypto jackings they all had uh, a crypto miner installed on their website obviously against their will now the the solution to that and I wrote a blog at the time and that was followed up by NCSC the National Cybersecurity Center here in the UK which is a, a government department part of GCHQ and they followed up with the same advice as well and and that was there are two different mechanisms we have at our disposal to try and help with things like this one being CSP which is content security policy and the other one is SRI which is sub resource integrity now, when, those, when the browsers implement these features, the standards body writes a standard and says, hey, we've come up with this new mechanism. The browsers read that and they implement the mechanism in their browser. But then who tells people? Like, how, how, do, how does your average developer find out? How does your average person find out? Like, there's no, it seems like we're missing this last step where the standards body write a standard, the browser implements a standard. And then it's like, how do people find out? And right now, the answer is kind of, they read blogs like mine or one of the other many security people out there. If it's a really big deal, maybe a news outlet, a tech news outlet will cover it. But one of the things that I found this year is that the most kind of frequent time when people found out about CSP or SRI was in news articles that said, hey, you know, the ICO and all these government websites got hacked. These two things could have saved them. Same again for Ticketmaster a few months later. Same again for British Airways a few months after that. And this is often the first time that people are hearing about these mechanisms because prior to this kind of negative coverage in the press of a company being breached and, hey, this would have been the answer, then how, how would that person have kind of ever found out? And that really ties into me writing my blogs and doing these public talks at conferences because I feel there is a gap there in, in we're missing the last hop, like from the browser to the developer to say, hey, this cool thing exists. And... You know, that's my small way of trying to do what I, I think that I can to, to bridge that gap. So how do you think the information security sector has changed in the time that you've been involved in it? I think one of the, the best things for me that I've seen, and, and I've, you know, to be clear, I've kind of only been in this space for, you know, four or five years, which is a relatively short time, but I've still observed a bit of a shift. And that is, tr- like security used to be this, this thing where it was like, oh, we, we have a team and like a couple of people with all the security knowledge and it's like this closed off walled community and it's really hard and difficult. And I think a lot of those 
kind of preconceptions are being broken down, we're realizing that many people need to have a, a very small amount of security knowledge in an organization rather than having, you know, just a couple of security people who are going to secure the whole company. Um, we're, we're looking at common problems. And a really good example of this is with the deployment of HTTPS recently on the web. Hmm. And it's like, right, we need HTTPS on every website. Why aren't people doing it? And how can we fix those issues? And cost was one problem. Let's Encrypt came along and started giving away certificates for free. There's technical barriers. So we need better tooling to knock down those barriers to entry as well. Um, you know, people write articles to get rid of the, the misconceptions of years gone by that were true a few years ago that this was hard and expensive and slow. And it's like, well, actually now, the technologists, the browsers have put a lot of work into making encryption cheap and fast. And again, it's more about disseminating that information, removing the barriers to entry and making security much more approachable and accessible for a wider audience. Time for a quick break now. But when we come back, Scott will take us through his opinion on what has happened in cybersecurity during 2018. Content marketing is, it's our obsession. Consumers are always being bombarded with content so white papers, mostly they are used, I guess, to persuade people. When you're refreshing content, really you're updating it. Go through your notifications every day and respond to people that are connecting with you. We've seen a real fundamental shift in the dynamics of marketing over the last 10 to 15 years. Tech Demand Weekly, the weekly podcast for marketing professionals. Now they know that I'm not just playing the sport for fun, I'm watching the scoreboard. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to People of Tech and my conversation with security researcher Scott Helm. Data security has been in the news this year for the wrong reasons, with the British Airways hacking that led to the dismissal of the CIO of that company. I know that there is a fairly recent blog post on your website um, regarding this and regarding how, um, if I get this completely wrong, then forgive me, but I believe it was a piece of JavaScript that was a third-party JavaScript that was actually the the source of the the breach, if you like, into the website. And you sort of talk about in that post about the obvious answer is – well, don't go to an external third party. I keep everything in-house. But at the same time, you then go back and say, that isn't the answer. As much as it is, it also isn't. So what are your thoughts on the industry and, and, and how brutal it can be at the moment with the fact that we, we did lose um, someone from that business as a result of, uh, of this hacking? Um, and then also explain a little bit more, if you can, about that, that blog post and why it isn't necessarily possible to just not use a, a third party piece of script. Sure. Well, the I think this kind of um, the answer here highlights another one of the things that the, the broader security industry is doing. So uh, we've got a problem on our website. We load this third party JavaScript. So British Airways was actually from another application in their own organization, but Ticketmaster or the government ones were from a third party. But we, we all do this and we all need to do this. Hey, we need a feature on our website. Someone's built it. We just import that JavaScript in and now we have the feature as well. The JavaScript for the third parties or the, whatever JavaScript you're loading was compromised to include, in this case, a, basically a card skimmer. So it's a JavaScript card skimmer. And the obvious like kind of answer to that is loading third-party JS. The JS is hostile. Don't load third-party JS. 
And that was kind of traditionally security's answer to the problem, right? It's like, well, this is easy. Just don't load third-party JS, bring it in-house, host it ourselves, or even write it ourselves. And those are the kind of things that meant we didn't make progress in security because like, the people load that third-party JS for a reason in the first place because they want it or they need it. And then security comes along and says, this is bad, don't do it. And then security and the organization are at loggerheads on, well, we want to do this thing, and you're saying, don't do this thing. So instead now we've come up with a solution to the problem. And the, the core solution to this problem was SRI, which is sub-resource integrity that I just mentioned. Now we can load third-party JavaScript, but we can check that it hasn't been modified. So we can trust the third party in that we're going to load it, but we're just going to double check to make sure the file hasn't been changed. And what this meant was that now as a security team or a security person, I can come back and say, okay, we want to load this third-party thing. I understand the need to do that but this is how we do it in a safe and secure fashion. So we're enabling them to do the thing that they want rather than telling them that they can't do it. I think that's been a really fundamental shift in the approach to security re recently in that we've got to start taking that approach more often. We can't just come in and say, don't do this thing. What we should do is come in and say, okay, we've, we've got a safe way for you to do what you were doing. And then people will embrace security and security can become an enabler rather than a blocker. Now, in terms of kind of spreading that information, again, I guess this is kind of the problem. Maybe if organizations, all the ones that we saw this year, including British Airways, had features like this in place, then, I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but, you know, this really would have helped them. And if we could turn back the clocks and, and these websites would have had these features, then that would have been all right. I think it's a pretty, it, it's a pretty kind of tough time right now because... Whilst these are relatively new features in, in terms of, you know, internet years, uh, they've been around for a few years now, but that does make them very young in the grand scheme of the web. Like this is, again, why we're seeing low adoption, I guess, because they are relatively new. The education and, and spreading of information about their existence isn't quite there. But I think people are learning very fast now. You know, we've had that many big stories this year with the government thing right at the start. We had Ticketmaster pretty much in the middle and then British Airways later. So we've had like several big warnings this year that this thing is coming. Magecart, who is the group behind these card skimmer attacks, they're not going away. So I think people are starting to pay attention to this kind of particular threat. And whilst that's great, again, this is like a wider community problem in that People are only seeing this because these very large companies have had very serious breaches and they're now kind of taking on board the, the mitigations for just those problems. I think we need to become just a touch more proactive. Our industry is very reactive to security problems like this. It would be great to take the current uh, interest and kind of coverage in this area and maybe just try and drive that forward into some other proactive measures as well. Uh, one of the other people that we've spoken to for this podcast uh, was Steve Wright, who's the Chief uh, Information Security and Data Protection Officer for John Lewis. Um, he was uh, very much sort of along the same sort of lines and saying about we need to be more proactive. Um, when I put the same sort of question to him about what's happened in the past year and how can we move on and learn from those uh, mistakes that have been made. Um he definitely sort of said, you know, we need to look more proactively. Um, there are these particular um, uh, breaches that have happened this year. And it's great that we're then sort of learning from, that, from those uh, and then trying to combat those. But what's next? And, and sort of then look at what they need to do in the sector is to actually look at what is potentially going to be the next type of attack 
Um, where's it going to come from? How are they going to implement that breach? And how do we actually stop that before it happens? It does seem at the moment, whether it's a fault of, say, the media and the way that these incidences get reported, or whether it is a fault of the security sector itself in not maybe promoting the fact that they're doing these things and that they've they've stopped attacks already because other thi- uh, you know that uh, because of other measures that have been put in place uh, i'm not sure i think i liken it to um say the police force or the um you know the security services where you don't hear about um the attacks the terrorist attacks that were stopped by the services and by the police yeah. you only hear about it when actually their job goes wrong and it does end up happening. Um, it, it's a similar story in in cybersecurity and, and and in business as well. I do wonder how we're going to sort of move on and get that more communication sort of flowing freely. Um, do you think it's possible that 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 will happen eventually, and it's just a case of we need to catch up with ourselves, or, or do you sort of see it as maybe being a, a stagnation of, of, of the same sort of thing happening for the next few years to come? I think there's a few different things to cover. So we we've seen this massive explosion in you know kind of online creativity and connectivity, people innovating like never before. And when I interact with um, kind of more traditional or long-standing organisations, they because of their size and agility and kind of foundation in a slightly older world, sometimes struggle with the more modern security principles. When I work with startups, I was speaking to some co-founders of a, a fintech in London recently. You know, they have security as part of their culture from day one. So these younger and smaller, more agile organizations have a great advantage there. I think the knowledge will spread and disseminate eventually. Um, You know, we're at kind of like a very low baseline right now, and that line is only increasing. The question is whether we can keep up with how fast the bad guys line is increasing because they are really financially motivated and have very little to lose often. So we are fighting an ongoing battle, I think, it kind of comes back to to this kind of education point again. And organizations right now are, in general, I believe, very reactive. And, and that's good. You know, obviously, a threat comes along. We need to react to that threat. We need to fix it. But that really then ties into our agility point as well. I think a lot of organizations need to be able to be a lot more agile. If a threat comes along and you're going to react to it, how fast you can react is directly tied to how agile you are. And, you know, maybe that's just deploying patches on your servers. Maybe it's training staff when um, when the whole ransomware thing kicked off in the last year or two. I saw a couple of companies shoot out like an email newsletter almost to say, look, these we've seen these ransomware attacks. They're on the rise. This is what they look like. And here's a couple of quick tips if you think your machine has been infected. And, you know, that's kind of taking a more proactive approach to rather than just waiting until we get hit with ransomware and fix it, let's just give people a couple of quick pointers to then extending that even further, which is going into the proactive space, which, you know, trying to send your staff maybe to conferences or training courses to teach them about the latest and greatest things so that you can start to integrate those into your organization and your development pipelines before we get to the point of needing to be reactive. So I I, I view that as kind of a broad spectrum from, you know, completely reactive, moving into the center when you have good agility and maybe then possible of being forward thinking. And I think we're seeing the needle move across that spectrum as a whole. Some organizations are obviously much further ahead than others. 
Um, but I think that we just need to keep doing everything we can to, to push the needle over to the other side of that dial. businesses share their information with other businesses i mean i know on a, a you know from an actual making money standpoint there, there's no way that um you know british airways will share um their detailed plan of how they're going to increase po- profits in the year 2019 with um easyjet for example or, or Qantas. but in terms of the security things do, do the businesses share with each other the knowledge that they create um through you know attacks that they stop happening and then you know with with attacks that do get through or or are they still quite secretive about that information they kind of don't want people to know that they've been subject to a to a hacking attempt again i think there's probably a couple of different points in there so i've i've certainly never seen anyone publicly acknowledge that but you know something like a couple of airline security teams getting together and sharing threat intelligence on the attacks that they're facing would certainly be a good thing for security but then you could also flip that around and say well, you know, if our competitor airline gets hacked and goes out of business, isn't that great news for us? Do we really want to help them? So I guess in a very cynical view, you have to kind of ask what their motivation for doing that would be. Um, I do think information sharing in general is a very good thing. And that, like I say, could even be just threat intelligence of common attacks that we're seeing. Um, collaboration is key here, really, to, to spreading that knowledge. Again, it ties back into the education thing that I... I kind of feel myself keep coming back to, but you know that might not just be someone teaching you. It might be like I say, threat intelligence sharing. Oh, you face this common attack. Um, you know, maybe we should be on the lookout for that, and we can take some metrics about what the attack looks like and improve our systems to detect and mitigate those. And I actually uh, wrote a blog post, I think, from memory, a few weeks ago now. Uh, where GitHub and Twitter both recently had some big incidents where they said that they'd acknowledged that they'd accidentally logged user passwords into like their error logs. And, you know, that made great big press. And everyone was like, oh, wow, this is a bit of big screw up from two big companies. But I looked at that and I was like, well, they have great budgets and great staff. And we're a small company with less budgets and less staff. If this could happen to them, could it happen to us? So I raised a ticket and our internal bug tracker and we went and investigated and found that there was actually a very rare circumstance where that could have happened. We looked at that and went to check if it had happened. Fortunately, it had never occurred and we patched the issue out. Now, them sharing that information allowed us to, to look internally on our own organization and think, if this can happen to them, could it happen to us? What can we take away from other people's experiences in order to make ourselves more secure? So. I think that can come in many different forms and really whatever form it comes in, I think collaboration like that would be really good for the wider community. Brilliant. So uh, what sort of do you see as the next biggest challenge like that businesses are going to face over the next 12 month period, do you think, Scott? I worry that right now we're still kind of at the beginning of this whole mage cart thing. So we have had a couple of big headlines this year. The first one started out with crypto jacking. So that wasn't really specific to what mage cart are doing, but it was a similar um, it was a similar threat in that they were modifying hostile JavaScript. So we have seen Ticketmaster and British Airways. They were fairly large scale. I think, and I worry that they're just getting started. Uh, we will find a lot more things that have happened that we didn't previously know about, and we will continue to go forwards and see 
uh, new attacks of the very same nature occurring. So we're now in this catch-up phase where, you know, Magecar are out there, Magecar are doing their thing, and we need to quickly and as widely as possible deploy the mitigations for that. Scott Helm. You can read Scott's thoughts on the industry and get advice about how you can better secure yourself personally in the cyber age at Scott's website, scotthelm.co.uk. That's it for this week. I'll be back with another edition of People of Tech next Monday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.